Show number 22 of I Read Comics. to tell you guys, since I confessed last week that I sometimes spend my Saturday evenings watching endless episodes of Law and Order, that um, I have a similar thing on Friday nights, and tonight is a Friday night, and what I would be doing if I wasn't doing this podcast, and which I'm going to do after I finish recording it, is to watch this show that's on the Learning Channel called What Not to Wear. I love What Not to Wear. It's my most favorite show. And I have one of those straight girl crushes on one of the hosts, Clinton Kelly, this really funny, snarky gay man. I just had to get that off my chest. Um, So let me tell you about what we have today. And I'm just going to jump right into the first thing because um, this has gotten to be a lot funnier than I actually thought it was going to be. So for those of you who read my blog, um, the one that's attached to this podcast, I put up something the other day um, about an artist, one of the pencilers for DC, Paul Pelletier. And the reason I put it up was because um, I was reading this week a collection of Green Lantern, and this book came out of the big box of stuff that David Arroyo sent to me. So this is a collection called Baptism of Fire. It came out in the mid-90s, and it collects uh, Green Lantern stuff from 59, 66, 67, 70 to 75. So this was right when uh, Kyle Rayner started being the Green Lantern. So it's all about him figuring out how to be a superhero. And it's kind of interesting. Um, the stories are a little disjointed, aside from the theme of him trying to figure out who he is. And uh, at one point, he's going off and finding other superheroes to ask for their advice on what it is to be a superhero. There's not a lot that ties them together. There's not a lot of continuity. But it was interesting, and I haven't read a lot of Green Lantern in years and years and years, not since the Green Lantern, Green Arrow days. So this was kind of cool, and I hadn't really seen Kyle much before, so it was neat to see his character growing. All that is prelude to saying that in this collection of stories, there were a lot of ass shots. And believe me, I don't object to that, because they're ass shots of men, and I really enjoy that. But it just occurred to me that because they're in there, there's so many of them, and because they are so lovingly rendered, that that the penciler, Paul Pelletier, must be an ass freak. So I devoted a whole page to that with some screen caps. And if you haven't seen it, you know, go on over there, click through the link, and take a look, because I'm not making it up. He really does. Now, it's part of his style. He has a very good, muscular superhero style. And I want to be clear, it's not like the gross Rob Liefeld superhero style where you can like see individual sinews. It's they're not gristly. His superheroes are kind of shiny and muscular and really healthy and athletic looking without being disgusting steroid guys. And the way he draws their costumes is as if the costume is really their skin. So it's also sort of shiny and it clings to them in ways that a real fabric never ever could. So the result is that for the butts anyway, you get this incredible cheek definition and lots of butt cleavage. And it's just really, really wonderful. And there's some shots of the Flash that are pretty unbelievable, including one where he's being thrown back by a sound wave that Sonar has tossed at him, and he's coming towards the viewer ass first, just right there, and he's making a, a pretty funny sound effect at the same time. 
So I really liked all that. And uh, I also wanted to point out that he draws women's butts um, pretty well too, although not as frequently in this book. As an aside, I do have to say I'm not real impressed with the way he's drawn the women in this book. I don't like the way he draws Wonder Woman in a lot of the shots. She's way out of proportion. Um, And some of the women have that kind of mid-90s sway back look that is like a model pose that real women can't actually do because it's anatomically really difficult and painful. That's just a very small thing. Now, I will say about um, Pelletier that he has done really, really good art on She-Hulk. And, you know, giant props to him for doing that because that can't be an easy job. And he did a wonderful, wonderful work on that. Um, And lots of other things, too. Anyhow, um, the the really funny thing about it is I get this email the other day that says, um, Dear Lena, as someone who knows Paul and has had the pleasure of working with him, I just wanted you to know how much I enjoyed sending him and all our friends a link to your latest post. So glad you're exposing something we've all suspected about Paul for some time. And then he says, Paul's not only talented, but a great guy, and I'm sure he'll see the humor in it. Thank you. And it's from Drew Hennessy, who's also an artist. He's an inker. He's done lots of stuff. Most recently, I think in 2006, um, a special Fantastic Four wedding issue. So once again, you know, who, who knows who gets to listen to a podcast? And I was totally impressed that a real professional listened to it and, of course, sent the link to the person that I was poking some gentle fun at. So anyway, um, so, so that's just the ass part of it, which I wanted to do first. Um, there's a couple other things about this collection that I wanted to point out. Um, there's, okay, so this was in mid-90s, and we kind of get used to some of this stuff, but there's a section with Donna Troy that just really made me laugh. Um, in the plot, she and Kyle are dating, and she comes to his apartment unexpectedly, and he's an artist, and he's been sketching this this hottie neighbor of his, um, doing a nude portrait of her. And of course, Donna jumps to the wrong conclusion and is all over him with, you know, I can't trust you, blah, 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 blah. And actually, it's kind of painful to read this because they're just bitching at each other for pages and pages, and it's far too much like the real arguments that people have in real life. I don't need to read that in a comic book. But the best part is she's all jealous, and she says... This is what I need. I need I need to find out somebody I thought was a great guy, somebody I thought I could trust is running around on me, and she's looking kind of sad and pissed off. And then she takes off her jacket and undoes the little bow thing in her hair and turns around and says to him, So is this what you're telling me, right? This isn't good enough for you? And when I read that, I laughed so hard. For two reasons. One, because that is a line straight out of, you know, true romance. When a girl thinks that her boyfriend is cheating on her, and immediately her first thought is, oh, I have to reconvince him of how beautiful I am, because it's all about looks, right? If he if he realizes that I'm beautiful, then he'll love me again. Of course. You know, it wasn't like he loved me for my personality or my sense of humor, my intelligence, or the fact that I'm a wonderful person. No, no, no. It's because I have to be more beautiful than the other woman that he's interested in. It's all about the looks. So that was funny. And of course, the way she says it, referring to herself as an object in the third person, you know, because, yeah, that's the way women should talk about themselves and say, this isn't good enough for you. And I suppose she could be using this to refer to just her tits, but I don't think, well, she would be saying these, wouldn't she? Um, I don't think that she's doing it. She's referring to herself as an object. So clearly she's trying to sell herself. But the funniest thing about it is that she doesn't really look any different. (laughs) You know, all she's done is 
take her jacket off and take the bow out of her hair. It's not like she spun around and suddenly she had makeup on or she was dressed in a, you know, ice capades costume or she was naked. I mean, I, I, I don't really get the effect of her taking the bow out of her hair and taking off her jacket. Like suddenly she was transformed from Mary and the librarian into, you know, <laughs> I don't know, a stripper. Bell star, something. So that that just rang a little false for me. But it made me laugh, so, you know, there was something to it. A um, couple other things. One is that, you know, I, I know that this is a, <clears throat> a trend with covers of trade paperbacks, but on the cover of this trade paperback, it's Green Lantern with all of the superheroes that he meets in the book, Flash, Batman, Shazam, Wonder Woman, and Alan Scott, um, lying on the ground, looking totally wrecked, like they've just been killed, and he's all busted up too. Um, this scene never occurs in any of the stories that are in here. Not even close. Fla- um, Kyle does get beaten up at the end, but he lives and all that. But nothing like that ever happens to the other superheroes. No scene ever happens where they're all together. Come on, just stop it. Don't do that. That's not fair. Um, I thought that the the end story here where he has to go and help the Dark Stars because um, bad guy from Apocalypse comes and he wants to take it over. That was all really cool. And I like the art and it's, it's very action-packed and people are getting hurt and stuff. I think all that is really good. Um, I like the way it ended and, <clears throat> you know, he has this learning experience and he really does begin to find out what it is to be a superhero. And that was cool. So that was a a good final story arc there. And it was better than the stories up front that, as I said, were just a little bit disjointed. Um, There was one thing in here, though, I got to say, this is going to be my my call to artists out there for a moratorium on drawing female aliens wearing high-heeled boots. Now, the reason women wear high heels, two reasons. One is to be taller. In my case, don't really care about that. Um, and the other is, to, for fashion reasons, to make your foot look narrow and to make your calf look sexier because, you know, it makes that calf muscle be all round and, and soft and bulgy looking. Um, and, you know, for fashion stuff, like you can make them look cool and everything like that. They're totally not practical. You can't run in them. They don't help you do anything. They don't help you kick. I understand why... Women superheroes have been drawn with high heels for a long time just because it looks cool being totally impractical. And I have to say, a lot of female superheroes aren't drawn that way anymore, which is great. To have alien females drawn with high heels makes no sense at all. You know, you can't even think about parallel evolution or anything. Like, they also decided that high heels would be a good idea. No. So please stop drawing alien females with high-heeled boots, okay? Or high-heeled shoes. Because it's stupid. It's really, really stupid. I would like to see more exploration of other sexy things for female aliens that don't involve lots of nakedness or high heels or standard Western European ideals of sexiness. So there's a challenge for you. There you go. So I think I've said enough about this slim little volume. It was really fun to read. I'm glad I saw it. 
And I have um, some other really interesting stuff to talk about for some indie things. Um, most of this stuff is new, which for me is a real pleasure to look at some new stuff. And of course, there's the thing in here, which seems to happen every episode of the great thing that I missed that happened like 10 years ago that everybody else saw. So let's play some music and then I'll be right back. listeners will remember that some shows back I did a review of an indie self-published comic called Schadenfreude, which I liked so much. And I am so happy to report that there are now two more issues out, not called Schadenfreude, in fact called Byron, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous. And Byron is the name of the main character. So just to refresh your memory, Byron is a, a club kid who has a really bad home life. And he imagines himself when he goes out to the clubs to be like Lord Byron, that he's mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And he's really a pathetic geek who can't talk to girls and um, has a, a really rich mental image of himself as this goth, debonair guy who is um, suave and really mysterious and everybody wants to know him and be him, but he's really not like that at all because he's just a kid. And the thing that I loved about Byron is that while he is ridiculous and pathetic in his way, he's also really kind of sweet and lovable, and you just kind of want to hug him and make it better for him, and you want him to make it through his horrible adolescence and turn into a decent adult. And he, he re- I think he does realize in a way how pathetic he is, which is good. He's not totally delusional about it. And all the things that happen to him are really, really funny. So these Schadenfreude and these two issues of Byron that I have here are by the wonderfully talented Carl Christian, who I met at WonderCon, and it was great to meet him in person. He was so funny. He was there with his his cute, cute girlfriend, who's just wonderful. And we had a really nice chat and talked about the book, and he showed me all the art that he's been making, which is amazing and, and just so really cool. And he told me that things have been going really, really well with Byron and he's working on the next parts of the story. So I have what's published right now are parts one and two, and there are going to be parts three and four that are coming out. One and two are, as I said, self-published. They're, you know, basically eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper folded in half with a really nice cover and a sticker on the front. You can send away to Carl to get them, and they cost three seventy-five a piece. Well worth the money. And I've put in a link to Carl's Live Journal, which is where you can get the information about ordering. You basically have to send him an email, which is carlchristian at gmail.com. So I put that in. I've also put in a little image so you can see what just a very small panel of the art looks like. And I really encourage you guys to buy this because I think you will enjoy it. It's creepy and it's funny and it has really cool art. Um, the art is a little bit different from what was in Schadenfreude. It's black and white. It's very high contrast. It's very pointy in some ways. And he's done some different things this time around with um, the facial characterization. It's kind of less 
um, and he's done more with interesting um, backgrounds and different panels too. I, I really, really like what he's done with this. He's gotten, he's packed a, a ton of stuff into these short little books. There's a lot of layered plot stuff going on. There's a lot of really weird character, characterization going on, and it's all building towards some really wild climax that I can't even imagine what's going to happen. So let me tell you the plot without giving anything away. Our hero, so to speak, he's not even an anti-hero. He's just, he's our guy. He's Byron. As I said, he has a, a really horrible home life. He has a mom who drinks too much. Um, and he really is in love with this idea of himself as this cool guy. I, I wanted to just read a little bit of the text because it is so funny. He's, he's, he goes out to a club and he he's taught, he's, these are his mental inner thoughts. The club is not as crowded as previous nights, which is odd. I had been hoping for a grand audience to put on the great and secret show of myself. The atmosphere brings to mind the fevered dreams of Dante, Bosch, and Barker, or would if I really had any clue of who they actually are. However, others do and have informed me that it's actually kind of cool. Bodies writhe around me to a foreign beat that I'm oddly not familiar with. However, I am not here to dance, but simply to be seen and admired from afar. To move like royalty among the plebes, peasants, and less informed. Let all lips quiver and wonder, who is that striking, dashing man, and why can't I be him? (laughs) I love it. It's so funny. Because that's what everybody wants to be, right? When you're like 15 or 16 years old and you go out to a club, you so want everybody to think you're so cool that they want to be you. It's lovely. He also draws on this little mustache and, you know, kind of powders up his freckles so you can't see it. I also like the fact that in the beginning, the way Carl has drawn him, he actually does look a bit Byronish, sort of older. And then as time goes on, he looks more and more like his real self, like the kid that he is, which is kind of cool. Um, so the thing that happens at the very beginning, which is a little flashback to his childhood, is that um, for reasons that we don't quite understand yet, his mother gives him um, his brother, which is a two-headed baby in a jar. It's kind of creepy. Um, so just bear with me on that. And then, um, when Byron goes to this club, he meets his arch enemy, Edgar, and Edgar gives him a a toad that has, uh, the kind of oozy skin that contains psychotropic chemicals that make you have hallucinations. So Byron has this frog. It turns out later that, um, there's a couple of cannibalistic vampires who want the frog. Sorry, it's a toad. It's not a frog. They want the toad. So that's what sets this all in motion, is they need the toad, Byron has the toad, they have to find Byron. And it turns out there's this kind of subculture of vampires, cannibals, I guess they're mostly vampires, but they kill and torture people too. And that's where the chase starts. So they're looking for Byron, and Byron at the end of book two is just sort of beginning to realize that he's in deep shit here. There's a lot of really funny, funny stuff in here, like those little bits that I read you. And there's some really creepy stuff. Um, Because of the psychotropic characteristics of the toad slime, Byron starts being able to talk to his brother in a jar. Um, Yeah. And his brother in a jar has a pretty good sense of humor. There's also a scene with a head on a plate that talks. So... (laughs) It's all really cool. I know it sounds really weird as I'm describing it, but it's it's great. Um, so I don't want to say any more about the plot because that would, as I said, it would give too much away. But 
I, I, I want to say, please go look at the sample pages that I linked to, see if it looks like your cup of tea, and please go and, you know, buy 50 copies from Carl, because he's an independent guy, and he could certainly use the support. So continuing in the indie vein, I, this isn't the big thing that I never read, but it is one thing that I never read. <laughs> this is Ghost World, which is published by Fantagraphics, and it was um, collected from comics that came out in the early 90s, like 93 to 97. And I don't know why I never read this, and I haven't seen the movie either, so I can't comment on the movie. Dan Klaus is the artist and, and writer. I've seen his work in a lot of places, although I can't remember if I've actually read any comics by him. Certainly not Ghost World. I didn't read it when it came out. But it's... I almost want to say this is like a classic Fantagraphics kind of publication. It's um, very simply done... Uh, it's not four color. It's actually kind of three color. It's black and white. And this, in in the copy that I have, and I don't know if this is in the original, but it's all the shading is done in this very light blue, like an almost um, light aquamarine blue, which is really interesting. It gives it some neat texture, and it's all about real life, pretty much. There are no superheroes or anything in it because it's an indie comic. Um, it's the story of two teenage girls, Enid and Becky, and what happens to them after they graduate from high school as they're trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And that's the plot. That's pretty much the whole plot, is just them being friends and what happens over, it looks like the course of a, a summer, and how they manage to get on with their lives. I, I think it's good. I personally like it, but I don't, I'm not crazy about it. It doesn't speak to me in the way some other comics have spoken to me. And I'm not sure why that is, and I, I spent some time thinking about it. I think one of the things about it that I can't really connect with, now this is just me personally, this is not meant as a criticism of the comic book, but the relationship that Enid and Becky have, even though they're best friends, and they clearly are best friends, they do everything together. They talk about stuff, they're on the phone all the time, they go out to eat, they... You know, they share everything, but their their verbal relationship is very antagonistic. And me personally, I was never that way with my friends. And it makes me uncomfortable when I see people who are like that or when I read a story about people who, who just by way of communicating with each other, always say things like, shut up, you're an idiot, and fuck you. And these girls say that stuff to them, to each other all the time. And I guess one of the reasons it doesn't, sit well with me or it doesn't make sense to me is if you're constantly saying fuck you to your friends in a joking sort of way, what do you say to them when you're mad? <laughs> you know, like that's for me, reserving the fuck you is for when I'm actually angry at someone. And I wouldn't say it in a joking way because then when I really was angry, I wouldn't have anything left to say. I mean, I guess you could go in the complete opposite direction. And when you got really, really, really pissed off at someone, you just look at them and say, good day to you, sir. And spin on your heel and walk out, and that would be the ultimate crushing thing. So, again, that's just a kind of personal thing. Um, and I, it is interesting in their relationship how they... Enid is clearly the, the leader, um, and she's always kind of pushing Becky to do things maybe she doesn't want to do. And they both take a very childish delight in playing tricks on people and in the whole kind of thrift store punk liking weird things lifestyle, which I kind of remember from when I was a teenager. And I can see how this kind of book would be 
it really would reach out to somebody who was, say, 20 years younger than me, who is much closer to that point in their life and remember how difficult it was to kind of make that transition from being with your best friend all the time because you saw them every day in high school to whatever it is you're going to do with your life. And I was browsing around on the internet kind of trying to find some uh, reviews of this and, and there were a lot of people, especially women, who said that they thought that it really did speak to them. So I'm glad. I'm really glad about that. There's a weird little section and I was kind of trying to puzzle out what this meant. Um, of self-reference where they're talking about boys and uh, Enid saying that there's only one guy that that she would be kind of interested in and she says um, yeah it would be that that cartoonist oh gosh now I have to find it they're talking in the diner and she's uh, Becky says name one guy who lives up to your standards and Enid says I don't know somebody like David Klaus he's like this famous cartoonist And I was trying to figure out why he deliberately had her get the name wrong. And because his name is Dan Klaus, not David. And I thought about it and I thought maybe it's because that's his way of showing us that even though Enid thinks she knows a lot of stuff, she thinks she's she thinks she's a punk and she thinks she's into cool old retro stuff. She really doesn't know anything about that. She doesn't pay attention to it. Nothing touches her deeply. She kind of sort of knows names of things and names of books and names of artists, but not really. She's not even paying close enough attention to get the cartoonist's name right. And that's just my interpretation. That could be it. It is true that every, just about everybody in this book is very self-involved, very self-absorbed, and very superficial to a certain extent. Except for, you know, this really intrigued me, um, the character of Josh, who is a boy that the two of them like, and eventually ends up being paired off with Becky, I think, who seems far older than they are, and I can't quite tell whether he really is older. It looks like maybe he even has his own apartment, um, but he certainly has no patience for the childish sort of pranks that they want to play, and he's an interesting addition to the mix. And I don't want to say that he breaks up their friendship because their friendship is certainly breaking up even without him added to it. But it's, uh, it's the way that they both react to him is, is very interesting. The way that he interacts in their lives and not to give away the ending or anything, but as high school friendships often do, things dissolve and, there's a, a scene right at the very end just showing you a little bit of what's happened to the both of them. Um, and it's not it's not sad because, you know, it, the, the true thing about it is that when most friendships end, they don't end with a bang. Sometimes you have a great big argument with someone and then you never talk to them again. But with most friends who you're no longer friendly with, you just kind of stop seeing each other. You don't have that much in common anymore. There's not the same stuff that you talk about. Maybe it's because you worked together and when one of you doesn't work there anymore, that daily contact is gone and the, the friendship just sort of slowly fades away. Um, and it's 
definitely that way when you finish high school, right? With all the people that you were with every day, and then you all go off and do different things, and you just don't have that much that holds you together anymore. So that's just the reality of the way friendships come into your life, and then they leave. So I, I like the way that was portrayed. I think I would like to see this movie, just to see how close it is to the book, and if it has the same messages. Um, it was directed by Ter- Terry Zwigoff, who also did the Crumb movie, which I loved. So I'm assuming that it was a good thing. So, Ghost World, yay, I finally read it. Again, another plum pick from the giant box of stuff that David Arroyo sent me. David Arroyo, Comic Makers. Sorry, Comic Makers is the name of the um, podcast. Comicmaker.blogspot.com is the link to the blog. Anyway, Kingdom Come, Mark Wade, Alex Ross, published in uh, 1997, I believe. And I just can't believe that I never heard of this before. I mean, maybe I did, but I didn't know what the hell it was. And I was just so thrilled reading it. It was the kind of thing that almost made me miss my stop on the train and made me actually want to stay on the train so I didn't have to get off and interrupt my reading of it. Um, It's funny that I just read Marvels a couple weeks ago because in some ways this to me was everything that Marvels lacked. Even though it was almost the same type of... It was the same story. It was exploring the ideas of the superheroes as gods. Um... But in this case, I just felt so much closer to what was going on and felt like the action was really there. Although it doesn't start off that way. The first, I guess, third of it or so still felt a little tableau-esque. So, you know, in paintings, when there's a tableau, it's people standing in still positions that's meant to, you know, be a, a, 
a representation of the scene. It, it's stylized. It's not supposed to be um, a picture of something from real life. You know, people are set in their poses. And I still felt like some of the stuff in the early parts of this book were, were very much posed like that. But as it got deeper and deeper into the story, it really began to come alive. And I did feel like things were moving and there was action and, and I was really watching the people involved do what they needed to do. So, yeah, it was just so cool. Um, the, the framing story or um, trick of having this uh, the specter guiding Norman McKay to see um, how the world might or might not end is pretty cool. You know, it gives us our everyman point of view, and it also allows us to be in different places at one time. Um, I was probably the only person who hadn't read Mar- um, <laughs> Kingdom Come, right? So I-, I won't spend a lot of time going over what the whole plot of this is. Um, except to say, in the broadest terms, it's a look at what happens when there's too many superheroes and they forget why they are superheroes. It kind of gets back to the Green Lantern book that I was talking about right at the top of the show where Kyle has to figure out what it means to be a superhero. Well, in this book, the superheroes who have been superheroes for many years have to figure that out all over again. What does that really mean? And it delves into all kinds of ideas about what it is to be a god and what it is to be a mortal and when those two things intersect. And I like that. I think there was a, a lot of interesting philosophy in here. Um, it also takes some of the classic DC characters and casts them in uh, slightly different roles. So to see Superman have to come back to be um, a, a leader rather than um, the guy who operates on his own, or even a servant, which he is in a lot of cases in the classic Superman mold. He's the guy who does what other people always ask him to do. You know, Superman, save my child. Superman, save the world. Superman, please do this for us. But he's never the leader, and in this story, he has to be the leader, and it's a very difficult thing for him. Um, And... Pairing him with Wonder Woman is really interesting, too. I love the way she was portrayed in this book. I thought it was very true to her character, and she shows much more uh, realistic grip of things than Superman does in a lot of cases. And I always got the feeling that there was a um, such temper, such, I don't want to say rage, but such energy and... Um, desire to do something about the situation right underneath her surface at all times. You don't feel that in Superman. You don't feel that in Batman. But with her, it's always kind of just lurking there. Like, come on, God damn it. Let's just do something. We have to solve this problem. We can't just sit around and wait. That was great. It just felt so good. Um, and then having Batman, very much I thought in the way that Frank Miller had started to portray him in Dark Knight Returns, really um, on his own, very cynical, very uh, committed to, as he admits later in the book, this control through fear rather than through trust. And uh, there's a lot of joking back and forth about, you know, being alone not being good for you and what happens when you're just in the company of zealots. And um, I thought that was kind of interesting how that same motif keeps coming up again and again, that isolation is a bad thing, whether it's self-imposed isolation or whether somebody thrusts it on you. Being isolated from other folks is not good, and that's what seems to lead to trouble in every single instance is this book is that isolation. It's just bad. Um, I, I The more I looked at this book, the more I, I thought um, 
that the way Alex Ross had modeled the characters was really interesting. To me, the way he's drawn Superman, Superman really looks like the Superman of the Fleischer cartoons. His body shape and his face, I thought that was just going way, way back to like original type Superman. Um, and Batman, when he's not in his costume, I'm not sure who he looks like. I kept looking at him and looking at him and not able to figure out what the model was. I mean, if you saw him and you didn't know he was Batman, you wouldn't know he was Batman. And there's nothing about him that suggests that he's actually Batman. And he's done some interesting things to the faces on a lot of the other characters, too. When they're in costume, of course, they're clearly recognizable, but he's shifted their facial features just slightly, so they look more like maybe somebody you saw. There are some cases where it's clearly somebody you recognize. I'm just looking at one panel here, and I don't recognize the superhero because I don't know his costume, but the face clearly belongs to Steve Reeves. And, again, it's slightly jarring when you go, oh, look, it's Steve Reeves, it's Hercules. Um... Alex Ross's art in this is just amazing. There are so many panels that are just so wonderful. Um, I should mention that this is the trade copy that I'm looking at here that had a couple of extra pages where Superman goes to Apocalypse and uh, sees Orion and uh, sees what's happened there since he's inherited um, the the rule of the planet from Darkseid. So that was kind of cool. I liked seeing that. There's a ton of familial relations in this, which I basically have no clue because I don't follow the DC universe. So all these children and partnerships and people who have switched allegiances and stuff, you know, whatever, it doesn't really mean that much to me. There's a little guide in the back to help you through it. But not understanding that for me did not detract from enjoying this story. It's nice when you know it, but I feel like you could come to this knowing really only who Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman are. Like, who doesn't know that? And you would still enjoy the story and get out of it what Mark Wade meant you to get out of it. It's that strong. It doesn't require the fanboy knowledge that I really felt you needed to understand Marvel's. Like, Marvel's was much more of a fanboy in-joke, whereas Kingdom Come is is much broader and has a um, a more timeless appeal to it. And I don't know if that's a difference between the Marvel superheroes and the DC superheroes, is that the DC superheroes, maybe because they came first, are more iconic and more symbolic, that they represent more things. You know, Superman is the, the classic, you know, Jesus guy. He comes from another planet, and yet he wants to be part of our society, and he's more powerful than anyone, and yet he's the servant. And, you know, you can go on and on about that. And you know, Batman is his opposite in some ways. And then there's Wonder Woman, who is another outsider, but yet very much part of this earth because she comes from this ancient society. Anyway, I don't want to get all tangled up in that. But um, I, I just love the way they're portrayed here and how their characters shift a little bit over time, too. I love the, the way as they come to the final battle with the other um, metahumans, as they're called, the, the evil superheroes. They're all preparing for battle in a different way. And Wonder Woman gets to wear this kick-ass outfit with these golden wings. And, you know, she ties her hair back and she's got that really sharp sword and all that. Boy, she is great. I love that she's so much a part of this story and such a leading character. She's not Superman's girlfriend. She's not Mrs. Superman. She's not even you know, his internet girlfriend, (laughs) she's Wonder Woman, and she keeps surprising him with the things that she says. You know, just about every other thing out of her mouth is a huge surprise to Superman. Love it. Absolutely love it. Also love the scene when um, she and Superman are just sitting around talking, and they're sitting on the outside in space of the 
floating command center that Green Lantern has built, and they're just kind of pitching these little rocks at the asteroids that are floating by. What a cool superhero-y thing to do. I mean, gee, if you could do that, wouldn't you want to? I sure would. I would love that. Um, My favorite series of panels come right at the end, and this was just the most astonishing thing. I looked at it like, I can't believe how good the art is in this. When, um, so in, in the story... Shazam is part of it. And I have to say, I love the way Shazam is portrayed here. He looks exactly the way he was originally drawn. I mean, as soon as you see the character of Billy Batson, you go, oh my God, it's Shazam. And, you know, it's Captain Marvel. You just see him and you know him and he looks exactly like you always think he looks. And Alex Ross has managed to convey um, the creepiness of the way he looks, that he's not quite all together, even though he still looks like the way Captain Marvel is supposed to look. Um, so when he and Superman finally get it together and uh, duke it out at the end, this sequence where Superman is flying as fast as he possibly can to get to um, the gulag where all the other metahumans are quarantined, he's he takes off and he's flying so fast that he's scorching the air with his speed and he he's just... He looks like Superman. Just looks like he's dissolving in this spectrum of a light, and I, I can't even explain how cool it is. But it is just like he's breaking the speed barrier there, and you just get this incredible feeling of speed. And then Captain Marvel shows up a couple panels later, flying even faster, and you know knocks Superman on his ass on the ground. And then the last panel of that issue is Captain Marvel standing there, looking giant and just unbelievable, like he's the biggest most powerful thing that ever was it's and there's a lightning in the background you know his symbol the shazam thing going on oh my god it's great um love the way that the superman and captain marvel look like you know really big guys really muscular but not grossly so just look like they should be as something else i really liked about the way frank miller drew batman was that he just looked really huge you know big bones and big muscles on top of them oh so good I am just so happy I, I saw this, and I realized that um, I think I remember seeing at the time some of the posters which are reproduced in the back that came out um, that Alex Ross had done the promotional work where it's these, again, these iconic representations of all the superheroes, you know, standing facing the camera with their chins slightly tilted up and this, um, you know, light from heaven shining down on them, and then some other. Um, views of the superheroes as they're floating in air and the way he always draws superheroes when they're in air is that you know they're standing up straight and their arms are slightly spread out to the side and their legs are always together and their feet sort of pointed down like they're ballet dancers or gymnasts or something very very stylized but but cool I mean he always draws them like that it's really neat every time you go through and when you see them like that um, it, it just you know, a whole group of them in the air all at one time in that, that pose. It's very, very powerful. And it's meant to evoke angels in some way, I know. Um, it's funny, I, I had just gotten done reading this and seeing these images of these superheroes flying en masse through the sky. And in some cases, you know, the really big ones sort of blotting out the sun, almost casting shadows over the earth. And the weather here in California has been really wonky lately. And when I'm in my office and a, a really fast-moving cloud goes by or, you know, a, a plane goes by and blocks this part of the sun for a second, I always get this little shiver. It's like, oh, 
It's Hawkman. <laughs> that was really what I thought the other day. Hawkman was flying by and blotting out the sun for a second. So, I, you know, I could just go on and on about how Great Kingdom Come is, but I'm sure you all know it, and I just wanted to say how very, very happy I am to have read this. Now, I understand that there's a novel that was based on this, um, and I think I would probably like to read it, although it looks kind of long. I'm wondering if knowing all the backstories and all the familiar relationships is going to help me understand this or it's going to frustrate me. And then I understand that there's a radio play that's based on, I guess, partly the novel and partly on this this graphic novel, um, which is very rare, hard to find, but I'm going to see if I can seek out a copy of it because I think I would like to hear. So interesting that this this um, graphic novel, these comic books, have spun off some of these other things. I was thinking that a novel based on this is pretty much fan fiction, although in this case it would be pro-fiction, um, professional fan fiction. So... So that's my big geek out moment, was loving Kingdom Come and thinking how great it was. And now I just want to wrap things up here at the end by uh, talking about two new things that I found this week. One of them is a new um, radio show slash podcast by Penn Gillette, who is one half of Penn & Teller. And it's on the radio, but you can go to his website and listen to um, archived editions. You can also get it for free at iTunes, like it's a podcast. And I love Penn. He's so funny. I love Penn & Teller's... um, their bullshit show where they debunk lots of things. And this goes along with the whole, you know, skeptics thing that I talked about a couple of shows ago. And, you know, Penn keeps a really open mind, but he recognizes bullshit when he sees it. So it's neat to have somebody talking about that on the radio. Imagine. And then lastly, I want to mention um, a new blog site that I found that's called When Fangirls Attack. And it's... um, a collection of links to articles about women in comics. And the two women who run it, Ragnell and Kalinara, just pull all these really interesting links from different blogs and different news places, you know, regular places like Newsarama and, and, you know, folks like that. Are comics good? Um, Just that deal with issues of women in comics. And I like the fact that it's all centrally located. And I have to say, I wrote them a little fan letter the other day, and lo and behold, there's my show 20 linked in today's or yesterday's uh, blog entry. So that was kind of cool to see myself linked there with uh, actual time codes in it and everything. So I've put them on blog lines because I think it's important to keep up on this stuff and to kind of, you know, keep fighting that good fight and to know what's going on. So to close this show out, I'm going to play a little piece of music that I really liked. And I figured it was, you know, a chance to have something a little more mellow. It's got this nice samba beat to it. So let's listen to Rio and come dance with me. I'm hearing the light from the window I'm seeing the sound of the sea My feet have gone loose from their moorings I'm feeling quite wonderfully free And I think I will travel to Rio Using the music for flight there's nothing I know of in Rio But it's something to do with the night It's only a whimsical notion To fly down to Rio 
was wings to the thought behind fancy. There's wings to the thought behind play. And dancing to rhythms of laughter makes laughter the rhythm of rain. So I think I will travel to Rio. Something to do with the night. 